morning. We are at the beginning of what our church calls Impact Week. And uh, if you don't know what it is, it, uh, it actually began about 10 or 12 years ago as uh, just a soccer camp in the hill, uh, the hill neighborhood of New Haven, like on the other side of the hospital from here, and ended up birthing a church there. Uh, and now it involves uh, mercy projects uh, amongst our community, around the city. Uh, it involves that hill church plan, it involves church plan in Wallingford, the one just beginning in Milford, and even uh, the church plan in Fairfield. And so it's meant to be this sort of microscope into the church in its purest, most beautiful essence. We're going to all do it, all of these different things, mercy, love, sacrifice, playing sports too, and arts uh, this week. And with that in mind, we come to the chapter on love. And I want to actually, can I do just a quick show of hands and please be honest, how many of you when you saw the reading or heard the reading were a little disappointed? Like you thought it would be kind of like soft and weak and ugh, we're going to talk about love and nobody? Okay, you're not raising your hand, so you're better than me or you're dishonest. Anyway, <laughs> it is an amazing, amazing chapter, but I think a lot of times when we just hear love, we think of the totally wrong thing. We don't think of what's going on in this passage. We don't think of biblical love, the word being agape. But in this chapter, the context is very important. The fact that it's written to a church, a church with a lot of problems and a lot of issues, like all those other churches, right? Not like ours, but all these other churches that have issues of division and arrogance, and they're, they're taking out lawsuits against each other, and they, uh, someone is, is sleeping with his stepmom, and they think it's okay because they don't think the body matters, and they have all these other problems, and into that context, we have this chapter on love. They had what scholars call an overrealized eschatology. They thought they were in heaven a little bit too much. And that's going to be similar to what I think our problem is. Although we may not get caught up on the same type of gifts, we do think, I think, that love is weak, that love is not practical, not part of the real world. So if we're going to talk about love, it's not really going to change much, right? That's what the hippies did or people who don't take life too seriously. But I think if we do try to understand this passage in its context, it really is meant to give us actually the only thing that matters, the only thing that endures even a glimpse of heaven. That's what love is supposed to do. So let's pray and we're going to jump in. God, we praise you for this day and we praise you for your word, that we can come to it and know that you speak through it. We know that your spirit promises to enlighten our hearts and minds with it, God, and we pray even that you would give us a glimpse into your love and the love you would have for us in this community, that we would get a foretaste 
of heaven. God, would you comfort the brokenhearted? Would you convict and challenge the hard-hearted and speak to all of us, uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first point, there's going to be four points. So forgive me, there's not three, but there's too much going on to do three. So we're going to do four. The first one is really basic. The first one I think is very clear, but especially in our context, it needs to be made. Love acts. Love does things. It is active. And you see that most especially starting in verse 4 because the words in the Greek are verbs. So when we read love is patient and kind, that's a bit unfortunate because English can't do a really better job, but it's more like love patience. King James did it better. Love suffers long. Love does kindness, does acts of kindness. It's filled with action words. And again, I have to admit that when I come to this passage, especially on this first reading, and Paul has built this up as this is going to be the most excellent way. Because the chapter before, he talks about the spiritual gifts of the church and wisdom and knowledge and speaking in tongues and teaching and all of these other gifts. But then he says, but let me tell you about the most excellent way. And then he, he starts off almost poetically, right? If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong. He goes all of these waxing poetic, and then when he finally defines it, he says love is patient. And that seems a little boring, doesn't it? A little bit of a, let, of a letdown, but I think it helps if we realize it is a verb. Love suffers long. Love does kindness. It is active. It is work. Suffers long and, and does kindness or patience and kindness are even described uh, in Romans 2 as the two main characteristics of God to us right now. God is patient. He's waiting for all of his people to repent and come to him. And he is kind because he is not bringing out his full judgment and wrath upon us or the world now. He's waiting. So it's a glimpse of, of how God acts. And so try to, to not only hear this passage afresh because it is so famous, but also realize how much we get skewed in our view of love because we automatically go to romantic love, erotic love, some type of feeling. We automatically go to that. And that's really not at all what's going on here. So we don't have another word. English, English has some issues, you know. Um, it, uh, it doesn't have a plural you. That's a big issue because the Bible is usually saying y'all, 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 and we don't want to sound dumb, so we don't use that. Sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> that was me speaking, not the Lord. Okay. I didn't grow up in the South. Um, but it also only has one word for love, and most languages have more. But we only have one, so we're going to have to use the word love. Love acts. It's the word agape in the Greek, but it acts in a special way. The second point is love acts unconditionally. Unconditionally. Which means there are no if-then statements 
in this passage. There are no if-then statements in the Deuteronomy 6 passage. There are no if-then statements when God tells us to love. Think about that. He doesn't say when you wake up on a good side of the bed. He doesn't say unless the person is really mean to you. He doesn't say if you don't feel up to it. No, it is not conditional. And that, too, is really, really hard to understand because almost everything in our life is conditional, isn't it? Our jobs are conditional. The grades we get at school are conditional. Uh, romance can feel conditional, especially when you're just falling in love and then you, you always want to have a way out. What else feels conditional? Almost everything in our life. The funny thing is, though, if we think about love as unconditional, that's a way in which we can actually see why it's so powerful. It's not weak, it's powerful. Kierkegaard calls it spontaneous love, the worldly love, the erotic love. He calls that spontaneous or preferential love as opposed to biblical love. And then he asks, what is stronger or who is stronger, the one who says, if you will not love me, then I will hate you, or the one who says, if you hate me, I will still continue to love you. Worldly love, romantic love, is the weak thing. That's conditional. It may be powerful. It may cause us to make all sorts of movies and songs about it. But I think that a lot of times is a, is a matter of our culture. We don't have anything else to cling to. So we make romance this apocalyptic thing. But it's not stronger. It's spontaneous. It's preferential, and it can be changed. You see that? It can actually be changed into its opposite. It can become hate if it's just conditional. If you don't meet my conditions of love, I'll just start hating you then. But biblical love, agape love, the love that God commands us over and over and the love that Paul is talking about here is unconditional. That's also why it can be commanded. Maybe you've been confused. How can he command a feeling? How can you say love God, love your neighbor? Well, it's because it's not a command. I mean, sorry, it's because it's not, it's not a feeling. It's not trying to drum up, you better feel really good about your neighbor and then go do something nice for him. No, it's love. And don't ask whether or not you should, just ask why. I mean, just ask how, sorry. It's never should I, it's how. To think of it as being freed from all circumstances being freed from all conditions that your posture automatically is going to be love, that is powerful. That is biblical, sacrificial love. Listen to the way the reformer Martin Luther puts it. The power of which we speak is spiritual. It rules in the midst of enemies and is powerful in the midst of oppression. That means you can still do it. The enemy doesn't have power over you to the extent that he can get you to stop loving. Oppression doesn't have power over you to get you to stop loving. This means nothing else than that power is made perfect in weakness, Luther goes on. 
and that in all things I can find profit toward salvation, so that the cross and death itself are compelled to serve me and to work together with me for my salvation. Nothing so good and nothing so evil, but that it shall work together for good to me if only I believe. He's talking about this spiritual freedom that a Christian is given by faith. And it gets at that freedom that love is meant to have. That all of the things that we encounter, no matter how bad, do not have the power to get us to not love. You ever thought about that? This, of course, is Jesus' love. We threw the worst we had at Jesus, the religious worst, the political worst, violence. We threw everything we could at him, our sin and our hate. And what did he do in return? He loved. He stayed. He went to the cross. He wasn't willing to let all of these horrible circumstances have power over him. So love acts unconditionally, and you see it throughout Scripture. The question for this passage, I think, that, that is really um, striking is why? Why love? Well, this is where we're going to have to get into some eschatology, which is a fancy word for the end times or the, when does the kingdom really come. Uh, but the third point I want to make is that love acts unconditionally because it alone endures. It never ends. And starting in verse 8 of our passage is where Paul really hones in on it's so important for us to realize what remains even into heaven, even into the new heavens, the new earth, and what doesn't. Because the Corinthians we're caught up in so many other things and other gifts, and it's many of those things that he lists. Prophecies, tongues, knowledge, gifts. They were caught up in things that don't last. And because of that, they acted as if they were too much in heaven. You could say that they were a kind of optimist where they forget that it's going to get even better, that we are not in heaven, don't expect heaven now, but they also didn't quite realize what, what is the real taste of heaven? What is the real evidence or sign of heaven and what is not? You may not be in that position. You may be more of the sort of pessimist, the un underrealized eschatology, if you will, and you just think the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket and it doesn't matter if we love, hate, who cares, Jesus is going to come back. You forget that there is a way to taste heaven now. You forget that we really are united to Christ by faith. That the church really is the kingdom of God by faith and not by sight, if you're the pessimist. But if we get our eschatology right, if we realize what it means to say the kingdom has come, but not yet, or as Paul puts it in verse 12, now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known, then we will see why love actually endures. But did you catch what he did with the knowledge? Knowledge, too, is going to fade. But what did he mean by that? It's the knowledge that we have. 
even we are going to know as we are already known. How are we already known? By Christ? By God? We are known as forgiven, beloved sinners. But our our knowledge is like a a mirror dimly. We, We can't see quite what that means, even though we have it. Even though we are sort of tethered to Jesus in heaven by faith, we don't quite see what that means. We don't see Jesus face to face yet. It's not by sight. And so that's why faith and hope are temporary. They are not going to be necessary in heaven. Praise God. Because we're going to be by sight. You're not going to need faith and hope then. It's going to be face to face. You're going to know just as you are fully known now by God, you're going to have that security. One way to think about it is we, uh, a couple weeks ago we looked at Hebrews 6 where Jesus talked about the forerunner and the anchor of my soul, of our soul. Jesus is like the forerunner who takes the anchor and takes it to, safely har- to safe harbor while we in the big ship can't get to harbor yet. We're, in he- we're not in heaven yet. He has taken us by faith into heaven and we are tethered to him by faith. And so we hope in that because of what we believe he has done and is doing. But faith, once we get to the safe harbor, we're not going to need it. And so to act true to who we are in Christ, to act true to who we are by faith, to act true to who we are as far as where is our heart, where are our real treasures and our real identity, that is to love. That is to love. And so it's true of us now to act in love because it's true of our identity, which is in Christ, who is in heaven, and he's going to pull us there. So sacrificial love, biblical love, can appear to the world and to us as risky and even weak, but in actuality, it is the least risky because you're doing the one thing that is going to endure eternally. Faith and hope are, are a bit like, like electricity. You don't need it when you're in a when it when it's full day out and you're not in a room like this. Right? You turn off the lights when you wake up a lot of times if you left them on overnight. Bart famously said, because the sun rises, all lights are extinguished. Let me try to get, get at this a little bit more because I think our love, our love waxes and wanes and it, it becomes hard for us because we forget the object of our hope and faith. We forget just how much we have been filled in Christ. And this is very much true of the first Corinthians, of the Corinthians. So at the start of 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, Paul addresses them in a pretty surprising way. Listen to how Paul says, this is chapter 1, verse 4. Part of his thanksgiving is this. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. What? As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless, 
in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you, have, if you know what's about to come in 1 Corinthians, that passage is really surprising. You do not lack any spiritual gift. You are filled with division and rudeness and arrogance. They can't even take the Lord's Supper right. But he still says that. Why? Because to be in Christ is to be in Christ. It's the Christ part that's important. It's the being filled with the security and wealth and riches that Christ has by faith. It's not because you feel it all right now. It's not based on your feeling, but it is truly who you are. What, what is it that makes it so hard for us to believe that? What is it that we think love is going to get us to lose? Listen again to the way Luther talks about it. Faith is truly active through love. It finds its expression in works of the freest service, cheerfully and lovingly done, with which a man willingly serves another without hope of reward. For himself, he is satisfied with the fullness and wealth of his faith. We should devote all our works to the welfare of others, since each has such abundant riches in his faith that all his other works and his whole life are a surplus. Do you get that sense? That you have been so filled up in Christ that everything else not only do you have nothing to lose, you have been so filled up that it, love will naturally flow out of your faith. That's why the only thing that matters, Paul says, is faith expressing itself through love. And then in our passage, 1 Corinthians 13, faith, eventually, he wants us to see, is what will fade in heaven. Luther goes on to say, we ought freely to help our neighbor through our body and its works, and each one should become, as it were, a Christ to the other, that we may be Christ's to one another, and Christ may be the same in all, that is, that we may be truly Christians. It's a better play on words in the German, I think, but to be Christian in our love is to share Christ with us and one another. So, We've gotten some, some sense of, of like the nature of love and, and the essence it acts. It acts unconditionally because it alone endures. It, it, it makes sense of who we are now, the way that faith and love interacts. But we still haven't really got to what it does. And that's what the final point is. And pretty simply, love acts for the other's good, for the other's sake. It's self-forgetful. If you walk again through that passage, it's concerned about the other. It's other-focused. And again, remembering the context, it's communal. It's not individual. Since it's not about our feeling how we may or may not be feeling today. It's self-forgetful. And so earlier in the passage, and even here where he says knowledge will pass away, 
Earlier in the book, he, he says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Why does knowledge puff up? Because you can have great knowledge, but knowledge often is distancing you from someone. You say, you think you know someone, and that they're not worthy of love, or they're not smart, or they're not cool, and that's going to distance you from them, or it's going to make you indifferent to them, or you're going to judge them, or you're going to just withdraw from them because you don't care. Knowledge, famously, right, it's kind of like the, the stats in politics. Both sides have great stats very often. How often is it for us, it's not a knowledge problem, it's a love problem. Our knowledge can be used to puff up and just isolate us from others, judge others. That's not what love does. Love builds up. The demons in the Gospels famously know who Jesus is. No. They know who he is. In the Gospel of Mark, nobody knows who Jesus is. Peter knows him kind of in chapter 8. Nobody really knows him until the resurrection but the demons. The demons say, you are the son of God. Please don't hurt me. But they don't have real faith. They have knowledge that has damned them. They don't have love. Love is other-centered. It's active. It's willing to do good for the other. And then so we get to these amazing descriptions. It suffers long. It does kindness. It does not envy or boast. Some, some uh, commentators describe that as sort of, it does not behave as a braggart or a windbag. It is not proud. It is not rude. Or you could say it is not, does not behave shamefully or disgracefully. It keeps no record of wrongs. What is the picture of a person who does that? They have, they have, nothing, they have nothing to lose because they've been so filled up in Christ and they are able to not ask, should I love this person or not? But I'm going to be concerned about this person. What is the best way to love them? That's the question. So don't get too sophisticated for your own riches. Love is not a hard thing to define. It's a hard thing to do, but it's not a hard thing to define. And so, if it's so other-centered, I think that also gets to why it starts to redefine everything else we do. Why he can say what he said at the beginning. That if you have all knowledge and all faith and all wisdom and have not love, you have nothing. You have gained nothing. You have profited nothing. This, too, despite how poetic it may sound can be really hard for us to believe. Do you really believe that? If you had the best job, the best house in your neighborhood, and the happiest family, do you believe that if you didn't have love, you would have nothing? Or do you believe that you would have a little bit of something? It'd be pretty good. Paul wants to say, no, you might as well just throw it to the flames. It's not worth anything. 
Do we believe that? And why is that true? Why would that be true? Why would it be true to give a bunch of money to the poor gains you nothing? Now, he's not saying it's bad for the poor. He's not saying that. But he's saying it could be bad for you, the giver, if you are the giver. It could be bad for you. It could be just massaging your ego, couldn't it? It could just be convincing you more and more that you don't need God. All these other people need mercy. Let me give it to them. You can do that with wealth. You can do that with knowledge. You can do that with all sorts of things. And if you have not love, you have nothing. Don't be deceived or, or, or sort of tricked, I think, by the world that really doesn't want us to believe this. It doesn't matter how, what we're motivated by, just, just get it done then you're going to act like you don't need Jesus. You're going to act like Christ is irrelevant to your life. I just need to do these outward things. As we're thinking about Impact Week, whatever your role may be, whether it's in the camp or mercy projects, it's not about soccer. I mean, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of soccer. I'll help lead some drills. It's not about the soccer. It's not about the painting a house. It's about showing them what heaven could be like. Edwards calls heaven a world of love. Can you imagine? And I think we do get to taste this in our community here. I do get to taste it in our community very often that there is love amongst us. That you taste it because you're not at odds with each other. You're not envying or boasting. You're not taking account. You know that this person isn't out to get you. You know that you can be willing to bear all things and believe all things, not because you're gullible, but you're willing to believe and say nothing, nothing. There is nothing in the world that love cannot face. There is nothing that I will not still hope in Christ. There's nothing that will put Jesus back in the tomb. This, of course, this unconditional love that is active, that it endures, that, of course, is the picture of Jesus. Jesus is the one who did that. It is a taste of heaven because of heaven's king. And so have you tasted that? This may seem unattainable for you to do, but have you tasted the one who has done it for you? That's what we get to taste here. The one who has bared all things for you and is always patient and is always kind and is never envious or rude, despite being spit at and flogged and crucified. That is the God that we worship. I hope that you have tasted that. I hope that you have experienced that. And let this meal be not only a taste of heaven, but the thing that defines our community of love. The only thing that remains to the praise of God. Amen.